0: Um, my boys will get up in the mornings and we'll uh, sit around and watch some TV. And, and uh, oftentimes, when we do that, a thought sometimes runs through my head man, kids just don't have TV shows like we used to back in the day. And uh, I know that may sound kind of dumb, but when I was a little kid, one of my favorite shows, when I was a little bitty kid, like six, seven years old, one of my favorite shows was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anybody remember that show? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Beautiful day for a neighbor. Remember how that song ended? Won't you be my neighbor? Well, this morning, I want to think about that word, that last little word in that song, neighbor. What does it mean to be a neighbor? Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I want us to look at what is maybe the most famous parable that Jesus ever told, and that was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's a parable that was brought on by this question. What or who is my neighbor? Now, to understand the parable, we've got to back up and we've got to see the scenario that's going on. What is taking place that made Jesus tell this parable? So we're going to start in verse 25 and work our way up to the parable, which begins in verse 30. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Life now. Jesus had been teaching his disciples before this moment. He he was in in a moment with them, and then a lawyer stands up. The Bible tells us here. Now, when we read the word lawyer here, we need to understand that this is not an attorney at law like we, this is not a prosecutor like we think of. Uh, this is not Corey B. Trotz. Uh This is not John John Morgan of Morgan Morgan and Morgan and Morgan here. This this is when the Bible speaks of a, of a lawyer, it is talking about an expert in the Old Testament law. This is a person who understands and who had spent his life studying the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. This would have been a guy that could have very well been a Levite. He he would have rubbed shoulders along the way uh, with scribes and Pharisees and priests and and other religious leaders. And And it seemed like Jesus always had a group of these people that were following him around during his ministry. And they would question him. They would interrogate him. They were always trying to find a a place where Jesus would trip up, something that they could hold against him, something that they could accuse him of. And so here we see this lawyer stands up and he asks Jesus, what must I do to receive eternal life? Now, initially, we don't really know if this is an honest question um, by a man who's really seeking truth or is this a man who's trying to trap Jesus. Um, But regardless, at least he came to the right place. Because if you're going to ask anybody about the way to eternal life, I believe Jesus is the best person to go to. And when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus spent an awful lot of time talking about how to receive eternal life. And so Jesus, in turn, does what Jesus does so often, and he answers a question with a question. Look in verse 26. Jesus said to the lawyer, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, this man was a lawyer. Like I said, he was, he was an expert in the law. Jesus knew that, and so he then, in turn, turns the question back on the man. Verse 27, the lawyer answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That was a quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which is the Shema. It was a passage that was repeated by Jews every single day. And then the next part, he says, "And you, And your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, if that response sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the same answer that Jesus gave over in Matthew chapter 22 when a lawyer stood up and asked him, Jesus, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, in turn, told that lawyer, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, maybe, maybe this lawyer was there that day. We don't know. He might have been in the audience that day and heard Jesus give that answer. Or he might have just been a man who had studied Scripture enough to, to come to that answer on his own and to realize that to sum up all the Old Testament, you could do so simply by saying, love God, love neighbor. But either way, let's look at verse 28. This is how Jesus responds. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will. Will live. And so Jesus is making the point to him that it's not enough to know biblical truth. It's not enough simply to know the facts of what Scripture says. We must, in, we must then live our lives based on those facts. I mean, the devil knows who Jesus is, but he doesn't live his life on that fact, does he? The demons know the reality of the truth of what Scripture speaks, but they don't live based on that, right? And so Jesus is saying, you know, you know those things. You've answered the right answer. Now go and do it. And this is where we begin to see the true heart of this lawyer. You know, what he should have said in this moment is this. He should have looked at Jesus and said, you know, the way to eternal life is to love God, love neighbor. And Jesus, I've really tried that. I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to love my neighbor, but I just haven't been able to do it perfectly. And so Jesus, now what do I do? That's what he should have said. Because the reality is, I mean, can we earn our salvation based on our works? I mean, can a person live a perfect life from the time they are born to the time that they die, never sin, never violate a single law of the Old Testament? Can they do that? No. It's not possible. Not unless your name is Jesus. You you can't do that. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says it like this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so God gave the law. The Bible teaches us, the New Testament teaches us, that God gave the law to expose our sin, to make us realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Scripture is clear that no person can live a perfect life. No one can justify themselves and earn their own eternal life. It cannot be done. But look at what this lawyer tries to do in verse 29. He says, He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And so the lawyer's response was to try to justify himself. It was to try to prove his worth. It was to try to prove that he had done it. He he missed the point. He, He failed to grasp his sin, number one. And then he asks a question Who is my neighbor? Why did he ask that question? Because he was trying to limit his responsibility. This was a que- That question of identifying my neighbor, who is my neighbor, wasn't so that he could do more in obedience. It's so that he could get away with less. To the first century Jew, to the average Jewish guy, woman who's walking around at this time, there was only one person they considered their neighbor, and that was a fellow Jew. It wouldn't have been Gentiles. It wouldn't have been Romans for sure. It, it, it most definitely wouldn't have been Samaritans. And so this lawyer wasn't looking for clarifications so that he could do more. He was looking to limit his liability. He wanted a pat on the back from Jesus. He wanted Jesus to say, well, your neighbor is just your, Jewish, your fellow Jewish man and woman. Good job. And, and he wanted to be able to say, okay, I'm doing it. I've got my eternal life. And so Jesus in turn responds with the parable. Now, why a parable? I believe it's because, as one author put it, thou shalt not might reach the head, but once upon a time has a way of reaching the heart. And so look in verse 30. Jesus begins to tell the parable. He said, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about a 17-mile trek that winded its way down the mountain. It went, for, it went about 3,400 feet from top to bottom. And along that route, there were all kinds of caves and rocky places where robbers in real life would hide. They would hide out, and they would see travelers coming down, and they would come out, and they would rob them. This was a very real scenario. The people hearing this story realized this could have very well happened. Now, we assume in this story that this man who has been robbed was a Jew. And and, and on his way down this path, these men jump out, they beat him, they rob him, they strip him naked, and they leave him to die. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he had come to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so it seemed like it was this man's lucky day. I mean, he has been beaten, he is left for dead, and all of a sudden here comes a priest, one of the descendants of Aaron, one of the religious leaders of Israel, one of the people who were commanded themselves to care for those who had been like this guy, who had been beaten and left for dead. But did he do anything? No. Well, then comes a Levite. Who were the Levites? They were the descendants of the tribes of Levi, the tribe of Levi, but they weren't direct descendants of Aaron. So they weren't priests, but they were assistants to the priests. Once again, religious leaders, once again, they were commanded as well by the Old Testament to care for someone who was like this. But did they help? No. In fact, if you were to go to the Greek language in verse 32, the way that the language describes it is that the Levite actually walked up to the man looked at him close, and then walked to the other side and carried on his way. Two chances, two strikes. Now at this point in the story, just about every Jew in the audience that day would have expected for the next person to come along to be an average, everyday Jewish guy. At that point in history, there was a lot of anger, a lot of animosity toward the religious leaders, toward the priests and Levites, the average Jewish people were frustrated with the religious leaders. And so they would have naturally assumed that Jesus was about to tell them a story where the average person was the hero, where the average Jewish guy was the hero, and, and, and to put down the religious leaders. But instead, Jesus throws them a curve. And instead of making a Jewish person the hero, he makes a Samaritan a hero. The mo- most unexpected person that you could possibly imagine to be the hero of the story. Now the Jews and the Samaritans were in the midst of about a four hundred year old family feud. The Samaritans were the descendants of the Jewish people who were left behind in the region at the times of the Babylonian and the Assyrian exiles, about three to four hundred years before this. And so they had been there, or no, no I'm sorry, for longer than that. Um, they had been there for hundreds of years. And they, and whenever whenever those, those nations moved the Jewish people out, they left certain people there, and they repopulated the area with pagans. And those Jewish people began to intermarry. And what resulted were the Samaritan people. And so the Jewish people saw them as half-breeds. They saw them as traitors. They hated them. And the animosity, the anger, the hatred was really both ways. They hated each other. Yet Jesus chooses a Samaritan. Look in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now let's think about what the Samaritan did. First of all, he saw this needy man, and he felt compassion. Now the Samaritan, any Samaritan in this kind of scenario would have had every excuse in the book to do nothing but walk by. And where, but where according to how Jesus tells the story, where a priest and a Levite saw inconvenience and sure death, instead the Samaritan saw need and felt compassion. I once heard a story about a young teenage boy who was madly in love with his girlfriend. And so one day he decided he was going to write a letter to his girlfriend and profess his love to her. And this is how that letter read. It said, I would climb the highest mountain for you, swim the deepest river for you, cross the widest sea, go across the burning desert for you. My love for you knows no end. Nothing can stand in its way. He signed the letter and then he put, P.S. I can't wait to see you again. I'm planning on coming to your house this coming Friday, so long as it doesn't rain. You know, the Samaritan in the story saw a need. And he had every reason to walk by. But instead, he had compassion and acted. He did something about it. What did he do? Jesus says that this man bound up his wounds. That would involve him tearing up his own clothing because this man who had been beaten was left naked. And so here he is tearing up his own clothes to bind up his wounds. Then he takes his own supplies of oil and wine, which would have been very valuable, and he pours on the oil. This was like a medicinal use. He pours on the oil to soothe the pain. Then he pours on the wine to disinfect it. And then as if, as if that wasn't enough, he then places this beaten man on his own animal, which means now he's walking on this very treacherous path, leads him to an inn, stays for the night... And then hands the innkeeper two denarii, which would have been two days' wages, but would have amounted to about two months' worth of room and board. And looks at the innkeeper and says, Here's two denarii to take care of this man. When I come back, if you spend more, I'll pay you back. That's compassion in action. Now look at how Jesus continues here in verse 36. He looks at the lawyer and he says this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. The man couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan here. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So for Jesus, the question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, how can I be a neighbor? How can I be neighborly? It's it's not that being a neighbor is some passive title that you hold simply because you live next door to someone. Instead, it's a calling that we have toward every single person that we come across. A life of compassion and a life of mercy rather than walking to the other side of the road when we see an evil. And that, that mercy and compassion that Jesus is calling us to can't be limited to a certain type of person. I mean, I mean, the Jewish lawyer here wanted Jesus to say that his only neighbor was his fellow Jew, and instead he uses a Samaritan to make the point. The audience of that day would have gotten what Jesus was saying here. They would have caught on to what Jesus was saying here. But do we? I mean, who is our neighbor? Based on this, I think that it's easy to see that it's anyone that we meet. It's everyone that we come across who has a need, regardless of their race or citizenship or religion or political party or language. Because of Christ's love, because Christ's love has no barriers for us, our love should have no barriers toward our neighbor that we love them because Christ loved us. We love them because Christ loves them. We love them because God created them in His image, and we would want nothing more than to see Jesus Christ redeem that person who was made in God's image. And ultimately, we love our neighbor because doing so puts our love for God on display. It's the clearest way in which we display our love for God. I mean, let's think back to what that lawyer asked initially. How do I receive eternal, eternal life? And now, he's, and Jesus answered, you know, he answers and Jesus says he's right. Love God, love neighbor. Now, it would be easy at this point to throw up our hands and to say, I can't do it perfectly. I'm glad Jesus died for me. I guess I don't have to try. I'll just trust in the work of Jesus and I'll leave it to him. I don't have to try to do this whole neighbor thing. But yet Jesus didn't just call us to salvation. He called us to a life of obedience. A life of following him into very difficult places and doing very difficult things. And he himself said that loving one's neighbor was the second greatest command. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven. 37. This is how Jesus said it. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. It's equal to it. It's right there with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That word love there is the Greek word agape. It's a self-sacrificing, self-giving love. It's the love that Jesus had for us and continues to have for us. It's the love that put Christ on a cross so that we may have eternal life. And he calls us to love, to agape God, and to agape neighbor. Now let's be real blunt and real honest here and ask ourselves this question. Why do we not? I began to think and pray through that this week. And I was talking with my wife about it. And I said, why, do, why do sometimes do we not love our neighbor? Why do we see needs and we walk by them? first thing I thought of was this, is that sometimes it's simply because of selfishness. I mean, life gets bitty, busy, money gets tight, we, our schedules get full, and we can, find, we can find ourselves living with our heads down, only focused on our own problems and our own goals and our own to-do lists, all the while missing what God has placed around us. We start to live our lives like this. Okay, God, if I can just make it through this week, I've got a lot of things going on. I don't need to focus on anything but myself and what I got to do. And then the next week comes, I got, I just got to focus on me and myself, and I just got to do my thing. And, and there's really no other way to describe that than selfishness. There's really no other way to describe when we become blind to what's around us. It's like a horse with blinders on. You know, you do that so they'll only look ahead. And sometimes we put the blinders of selfishness on and we refuse to look around us and see the needs around us. And we get caught up only thinking about me. Back in the 90s, in the country of Nepal, they they lifted the ban on climbing Mount Everest. It's a tremendous mountain. It's huge. The peak of it stands at 29,000 feet. That's way up there. Um, And since then, since the 90s, about 4,000 people have made it to the peak of Everest and back and lived. And in that same amount of time, at least about 265 have died trying. In fact, many people pay fortunes. They pay $60,000 plus for the experience, for the training, for the equipment, for the travel to get there up and down alive. That's a lot of money, ain't it? They, they, because they, they are so committed to it, they're willing to invest all this money. 60000 plus is what I found. But with all that influx of people trying to climb up that mountain and all that influx of money, this is what's happened a really disturbing thing, and that's a decline of morals along the path. You know, in the rush of trying to get to the top, people who have invested so much for the bragging rights of saying, I've made it to the peak of Everest, will do almost anything to get there and back even if it means leaving other climbers behind. It happened to a 34-year-old man by the name of uh, David Sharp from Cleveland. He managed to make it to the peak of Everest, but about 900 feet coming down, like he's now he's at like 28,000 feet, he ran out of oxygen. It's so high up there you have to have an oxygen tank. Well, he ran out of oxygen. And no fewer than 40 climbers passed him as he died on the path. Nobody willing to sacrifice to stop their journey up to help this man and prevent him from dying, and he froze to death. According to one pro-crimer that I read this week, um, this guy said this. He said that, that that kind of thing is not even that unique. He said passing people who are dying is not uncommon. Unfortunately, there are those who say it's not my problem. I spent all this money, and I'm going up to the summit. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Sounds un- un- unhuman, inhumane. You know, the crazy thing is stuff like that doesn't just happen on Mount Everest. I read another story this week of, back in 2007 in Wichita, Kansas, of a woman who was attacked and knifed in a convenience store. And surveillance cameras recorded no fewer than five people who stepped over her as she lay dying in the floor of that convenience store. It seemed like they were too busy to get their snacks than they were to help this poor lady who died on the floor of that store because she had been stabbed with a knife multiple times. Now, we may not literally step over people. We may not leave people behind physically. But let me just ask this question very honestly. Are we guilty many times of figuratively stepping right over people who are in need because we're too busy carrying out our own agendas and doing our own things that we lose sight of the needs around us? I think it can happen. I think it does happen. Second thing I thought of when I thought of why we don't love our neighbor, and this is a very difficult one to think about because we don't ever want to admit this, but sometimes let's be honest and say that we don't help because of feelings of prejudice, because of feelings of racism, just to call it what it is. We think they don't deserve our help. They did this to themselves. Those people, they came from the other side of the tracks. Their own people can help them. We don't like to talk about it, But sometimes we want to limit what God has called us to do because that person is one of those. We don't want to think about it because it exposes some darkness in our own hearts. But you know, we may look and we may see broken people around us, but the reality is that we're all just one step away from being broken people ourselves. We're all just one job loss from being there. One divorce, one troubled kid, one serious illness, one diagnosis, one stock market crash, away from being those people. And God has called us to be neighbors to those people. Just like this guy in the story, who was beaten and left for dead. But then also, too, it may be that we don't help not because of selfishness or not because of prejudice, but maybe we see needs. Maybe we genuinely feel sympathy. We genuinely feel compassion, but we don't act because of fear, because we're afraid of what might happen. We're afraid of the danger because we're afraid that they don't look like us, but because we're afraid we don't know how they're going to respond. We're afraid that, that, that others might think something of us if we're seen with those type people. You know, one author I read this week said it like this. He said, perfect love may cast out fear, but fear has a potent way of casting out love. Fear has a way of pushing love out of our hearts. Selfishness has a way of pushing love out of our hearts. Prejudice has a way of pushing love out of our hearts. And I know this may step on toes because it steps on my own, but let's be honest and ask ourselves if that's true of our own lives. I believe the clearest testimony of our love for God is our love for neighbor. First John 4.20, John talks about how, he, he's, he basically says, you know, how can you say you love a God who you've never seen if you don't love your neighbor who you do see? If you don't love your brother or sister who you can see? How could you possibly say that you love a God in heaven? And so I think the true test is this, is that if, if, we, if, if passing by the hurting, whether that be physical hurting, the emotional hurting, the financial hurting, the, 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 whatever it might be, if passing by the hurting is typical of our lives, what does that say of our love for God? What does it truly say of our love for God if we continually pass by the people who hurt? Jesus said in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's how they'll know. Back in uh, July of 2017, so just like a little over a year ago, or not even a year ago, um, down in Panama City Beach, the people who were at the beach on this particular day uh, watched a family get pulled out in a riptide. I don't know if any of you ever go to the beach, if you've ever seen what can happen or been you know, warned about riptides, but there were these two boys who were out playing, and they got sucked out by the riptide. Well, naturally, what comes next is mom jumps in the water, and she begins to try to swim out there to him. Well, she gets pulled out. Well, over and over, this takes place to the point where there's nine people who are being pulled out to sea and can't get back in, and they're at risk of drowning. And so, and so this one man by the name of Derek Simmons, he begins to run out there, but then he stops and realizes, well, if I do, I'm just going to go out there himself. So he looks back at his wife, and his wife... Um, his wife Jessica has this idea. And so she begins to gather people on the shore and they made a chain of people. I've got a picture of it, actually. You can kind of see this long chain of people and you can't even really see it. And you can see kind of, all you see is like heads barely above the water. And so they literally made an 80-person chain that reached out to this family of nine people and drug them back to shore. Total strangers. They didn't know these people. I think that's a perfect picture of who, what we're called to be. Of the neighbors that we're called to be. To be believers who are linking arm in arm, hand in hand, reaching out into the dangers of this world, trying to pull people to the shore, to safety with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's who we're called to be. That's what it means to be a neighbor. Would you pray with me? As we come to this time of invitation, I think as believers, for those of us in this room who are believers in Jesus Christ, I I think this, we have to answer the same question that this logger did. When Jesus looks at him and says, okay, who... Who was the neighbor here? And that man looks back and said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus looks at him and says, Go and do likewise. And so, for those of us in this room who claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, are you being a neighbor? Are you a person of mercy and compassion who's willing to reach across the lines? to help a person in need. Maybe today you need to confess something that's kept you from doing that. Maybe it's something I mentioned. Maybe it's something I didn't mention. But maybe there's something in your life that's caused you to not be what God has called you to be, to cause you to, to lose the love, the mercy, and the compassion for others that God wants us to have so badly. I know for me, I want to put my love for God on display in this world. And the best way I can do that is to love the hurting that I come across with. Will you do that? Will you commit yourself to living by that? And maybe you're here today and and, and you are not a saved person. You're not a Christian. You've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Well, you know what? You can't do it on your own. Your works will not save you. You cannot be good enough to outdo the sin that you've committed. And see, the only way that you can find eternal life is through Jesus Christ and through surrendering your life to Him, to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you today, I would love, I would encourage you to walk down this aisle at this time of invitation so that we can share more with you about that and we can help you make that decision. Father, I do pray for each and every person in this room. I know that every person's at a different place in their walk from those who are lost to those who have been saved for generations and there are things that we deal with and struggle with. But I pray that today, if there be someone in this room who is this is a hard spot for them, I do pray that you would break down the walls, break down the barriers. Call us to be people of love and compassion, to not hold back in showing that love. And I do pray that if there be someone in this room who needs you as the Lord and Savior, who needs to receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can give, that today would be the day that they pray to receive Christ. God, make your presence known in this place as we come to this time of invitation. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things.